Good morning, church. Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Peter this morning, uh, to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, or maybe are not as versed uh, to the Scriptures, I want you to grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you, because we're going to be going all over the place in the Scriptures today, and for the sake of time, I'm going to be moving quickly uh, to those passages, and, and if you have the pew Bible, I can give you the page number, and you can turn there right away and, and follow along. But we're in our second week in our series that we've entitled uh, The Invisible War, uh, Winning Against Evil. A focus uh, of our summer is going to be dedicated to this idea of the spiritual war that is going on uh, around us. And last week, uh, uh, Pastor Steve opened this series for us by sounding an alert, uh, a, a call to arms, if you will, for us as believers, remind, reminding us that we're all in a fight. Uh, maybe not a fight per se that, that you may fight in, in the ring of boxing. Maybe not a, a fight where you uh, take on the, the role of a soldier in a physical battle, uh, but a spiritual one, one that takes place in the heavenly realms that has massive ramifications and repercussions in our lives in the here and now. The Bible is full, especially the New Testament, is full of commands for us as believers to be ready for this fight. Uh, we're reminded, as we'll learn in our text this morning, to be sober-minded. That is, that we as Christians are not to be so intoxicated uh, by the lives and activities that we live, uh, but to always be on uh, alert. Uh, this idea of alert the New Testament uses as well as a military term of soldiers who are constantly and always ready for the enemy to strike and to be ready to protect all that is important in their lives. I can't tell you as a pastor how many lives have been swept away because people weren't ready for this battle thinking that it wouldn't affect them, it wouldn't hit close to home. Many Christians find themselves unaware of the battle that's going on around them. And so this is a reminder for us as a church to stop and take stock of the battle that's going on around us and to be aware of the devil's schemes and how he works to destroy uh, all that we have done for the cause of Christ in a matter of seconds. So our job is to be continually ready for the battle, to meet the enemy through the power of God. So let me remind you again what Pastor Steve told us last week. We are in a war, and the question this morning, Village Bible Church, is are we ready for what the enemy is going to throw your way? Are you ready for the battle that's going to hit you in the moments, maybe even before you leave this place and into your new work week, into another week in the world? The elder's prayer is that by focusing some time on this subject of spiritual warfare, we might be equal to the task. So now we're on alert. Now we know the alarm has been set. The question is, what are we to be on the lookout for? The next three weeks of this series are going to focus in on the adversaries. We've, we've already been alerted. Now we're going to look to the adversaries in the battle. This week we're going to talk about the devil and demons. Next week we're going to talk about the world, the system of ideologies and, and thoughts that seem to be so against everything God and his word has to say. And finally, we'll look at the enemy from within, the flesh, all those appetites and desires that tell us uh, to go against and contrary to the will of God and to live in rebellion against him. But once we get through the adversaries, we need to recognize that we are a people who have victory in Christ Jesus. And though these adversaries are powerful, that they are incredibly deceptive in their schemes, we need to remember that the battle's already been won. And because the battle's already been won, we have allies in this fight. And that will be the next part of the series where we'll look at the allies those that are fighting with us, our fellow believers, the word of God and, and the blood of Jesus Christ. And not to mention in the final part of this series, later in our summer, where we'll pick up Ephesians chapter 6 and we'll learn about the armor of God. The armor that is there that God has given his children to protect you in the fight. So with that all as a backdrop, I'm going to ask that you would turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. And while this will be just a starting point for us, it's a good reminder. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word, a very short but famous passage in the Scriptures where Peter, a follower of Jesus Christ, one who recognized the schemes of the devil, 
shares this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him, that's God, to God, be the dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Hollywood has a predicament these days. With all of the new superhero action movies that are out, Hollywood struggles to top themselves when it comes to creating a bad guy for the new movie. A bad guy who will top all the other bad guys. They struggle to find ways to make villains more vile and depraved than they were before. And with all of these different movies out there, moviegoers want to see their bad guys even more crazy and more vicious than the movie they went to last month. And anything less than that won't cut it. One film critic shared in US Week or Us Weekly magazine that directors are going to great lengths to create a villain who will make your skin crawl and whose every movement keeps you on the edge of your seat. We're looking for uh, villains, he says, to push the limits of the scripts and even of the actors who play the part. Many will remember uh, the tragic story of actor Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger uh, had the part that he had always been looking for. In the movie The Dark Knight, uh, the newest uh, edition of the Batman series, Heath Ledger would be given the part of playing the Joker. Now the Joker back in my days watching the old uh, Batman TV show was a Joker who was something you would laugh at. Someone who in many ways you would just kind of, oh, he's a funny guy. Kind of a little bit crazy, a little bit quirky, kind of like that uncle that you don't want to say you're related to. But the Joker in this new series was a dark Joker. He was a a Joker that, that pushed the limits and Heath Ledger wanted to take it to the full extent of the script. And he began to study what it meant to be personified as evil. He began to uh, put himself in a hotel room to read the script and, and to understand all that he could about what evil would be like. And he came out in the movie and, and the movie had him as one of the darkest villains that there could be. He was scary. He did make your skin crawl. He, he pushed the limits. But brothers and sisters, Heath Ledger would learn a very, very tragic lesson. That when you play with evil, you can't just play the parts. That it will corrode the very essence of your life. Heath Ledger, at the age of 28, before Batman, the Batman movie, which he starred in, would come out while still in editing, Heath Ledger would be holed up in an apartment in solitude, filled with depression and despair. He would take a cocktail of six antidepressant drugs that would put him to death. A diary was found uh, on Heath Ledger in his apartment And it articulated uh, what he wanted to do in his part as the Joker. He wanted to be the ultimate villain. And while Hollywood may give out many awards, and while Hollywood may seek to, to rattle our cages when we go to the movie theater and call it entertainment, we need to understand that no award for the ultimate villain can be given to any man or woman. That diabolical distinction is given to the devil himself. And this morning, we're going to spend some time looking at this villain we're going to explore his life. Now, i got to be honest with you. Amanda was, and I were driving to church, and she says, don't you think that's a bit odd that you would spend time in the pulpit speaking about the devil? Yeah. There's a part of me that says this, this shouldn't be the time to talk about it. This is a time where we uh, lift up and lift high the name of Jesus Christ. Why would we waste time with a, a dog like the devil? 
But I recognize that, number one, the Bible speaks to this. Number two, we have many whom we love, even in our midst today, who are struggling because of the schemes of this evil one. And the word of God needs to be taught. It needs to be proclaimed even at times when we have to dedicate time to a subject matter that I'd rather not. You see, it's necessary for us as Christians to be aware of who the devil is and how he works because as the text says in 1 Peter, he is looking to destroy us. He's looking to devour us, to tear us limb from limb. So as we look at this text this morning, as we look at this, as we follow along in in the sermon outline, you're going to see four things that we need to understand about this battle that we fight with this ultimate villain. The first one is, is kind of an overview and one that Pastor Steve addressed a little bit last week, and that is our tendency. Notice the tendency that we have. Anytime the subject matter of the devil or demons come up, we seem to be all over the place, not only as human beings, but as believers. The first tendency is, number one, write this down, is when we look at the devil, we dismiss the devil and demons, we dismiss them as hocus pocus. What I mean by that is that we consign them to what is unbelievable. It's foolish or empty talk. That demons and, and uh, the devil and, and ghosts and all that are, are fun and games around a campfire in a campout. They're a lot of fun to talk about uh, during a sleepover uh, when the only light in the room is maybe a flashlight or a candle, something that will rile people up and give a good laugh when we scare the person next to us. But then beyond that, there's not that much going on. For believers, there are many who will look to the accounts of the New Testament and see the many times where demons were present in, in the New Testament narrative. And they will say that the reason why all this demon possession was going on really wasn't that there was a spiritual attack going on. It was just because of the finite minds of the people in the first century. They didn't understand mental illness. They didn't understand all that were medical issues that were going on at the time. And so really what Jesus was doing was he was this, this shrink, if you will, that, that righted the wrongs of mental illness and that there were no demons involved at all. These types of people see the devil as nothing more than the bad side of your conscience, that little little devilish creature on your shoulder who tells you to do all the fun things that maybe you shouldn't do, while others view him as a, as a man in a red jumpsuit with pitchforks, wearing his red pajamas. Still others say he has nothing to worry about. And that's a tendency that some of you, even this morning, may find yourself in. Why, why do we even mess with this? This is nothing uh, to be worried about. This is fun. There's a second group of people who their tendency is to dabble with it because it's, they deem harmless. Dabble with it as if it's harmless. I'm always discons- uh, dis- disheartened by Christian, uh, Christians who see this stuff as, as harmless, and find themselves dabbling with it. Maybe not all the way in it, but, but dabbling with it. And Christians who, who fancy themselves on reading horoscopes, who get their fortunes read to them. Christians who watch movies and, and read books like that of The Walking Dead or Twilight and calling it entertainment. Movies that are focused in on dead people, vampires and zombies. There are even some that, that find themselves playing with, with satanic devices such as Ouija boards. And this, you may say, well, that, that's old school. Now kids are playing a game called Charlie, Charlie. All you need is a piece of paper and a couple pencils, and you can raise uh, questions to the devil himself. And kids are falling prey to it all the time, maybe even your own children this morning. Some of us look at the devil and the demons And we see them as as just cute, cuddly creatures. Things that we can play with. A a, a broken down household pet. A pet that we can have fun with. And yeah, he may show his teeth every once in a while, but he would never bite you. You know, Peter, I think, had a lot more understanding of the devil. And he says, hey, uh, the devil is not your lab at your feet. The devil's not that little chihuahua that you got that you love. The devil is a roaring lion. 
And he seeks to devour you. And some of us are playing games with this lion, thinking that he is something we can cuddle with. Every year uh, or so, we, we will go to the Lincoln Park Zoo as a, as a family. And in the large cat house at the Lincoln Park Zoo, uh, for the last couple of years, my favorite place to go is to the uh, exhibit where it, I believe it's a jaguar or some large cat. And, and you watch the cat, and he's behind bars, and we can take pictures and show our children him. But if you ever get a chance at the Link Park, you go see that big, large, black cat. I believe, like I said, he's a jaguar. He roams about to and fro, and he looks at you. And there's something menacing about it, because what he's saying is just take, this, just take these bars down for a minute. A second. Give me one second and I'll have the greatest lunch. And he looks at the big guy who's bald and he says, hey, I can eat on him for a while. (laughs) And so we need to recognize this morning that the devil is not a game we play with. He's not someone we cuddle up with. But he has one desire in mind, and that is to tear us up. If we're not careful, we can find ourselves falling to these two tendencies. Well, on the other side of the spectrum... There's another sense that we find ourselves falling to another extreme, and that is where as Christians we can drift into hysteria. These are Christians who treat spiritual warfare as the only lens by which you perceive all of the world through. Those who hold to this position attribute everything that happens to the demonic world and to spiritual warfare. They will find a devil or a demon behind every bush. David Paulison said, A great deal of Christian fiction, superstition, fantasy, nonsense, nuttiness, and downright heresy flourishes in churches under the guise of spiritual warfare in our time. Some of this that we see today is the false teaching that includes demon-possessed Christians, formulas for exorcisms, the binding of devils, the rebuking of demons, and the mapping of a demon's physical location, all of which find no foundation in the pattern of teaching in the New Testament. In fact, in the greatest passage on spiritual warfare, none of that, and that's Ephesians chapter 6, none of that is even spoken about. And so Paul obviously felt that the best thing that we could do as Christians was to resist the devil, to stand firm in the faith, and to put on the armor of God. C.S. Lewis, the great uh, theologian, wrote in his book, The Screwtape Letters, regarding our tendency to be out of balance when he said to the spirit world, he said this, there are two unequal and opposite errors into which our race can fall. One is to disbelieve the existence of demons. The other is to believe them and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. The demons are equally pleased by both heirs. They hail the materialist who believes as if nothing is happening and the magician who sees it everywhere with the same delight and joy. So what does then a balanced view of our understanding of the devil and demons look like? How are we to be able to understand what we should know as right from the scriptures, our understanding with regards to the enemy? Well, notice the Bible speaks much about it. Notice the next thing, as we look at our tendency, we must look at the enemy. We must invest some time, and the Bible says much about this villain that we call the devil. So notice our enemy this morning. Now, the devil says more than I could fit into a message, but I want to look at three areas of our enemy, and I want to explore them for a moment with you. First of all, we need to understand who our enemy is by looking at his identity, by looking at his identity. The Bible says that we've got an adversary, the devil. He's the enemy. He's he's terrorist number one. He's the ultimate villain. But long before his days of being the ultimate villain, he was an angel named Lucifer. And he was something beautiful to behold. First and foremost, we must recognize this morning that the devil... In his days before falling, 
and being filled with pride, would serve as an angel in the army of God. He was and is a creation of God. He is not equal with God. He is an angel that God created. And in the beginning, when the scriptures open up with the phrase, God created and it was good, Lucifer was one of those good things. Lucifer was there in heaven with the angels, worshiping and praising the name of God. Lucifer literally means shining light or shining one. The Bible describes him as nothing short of amazing. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel. In the book of Ezekiel, if you uh, want to just follow along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 715. Page 715 in the Pew Bible. Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 15. Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 15. Page 715 in the Pew Bible. Let's listen to what the Word of God says about this angel, Lucifer. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. The craft in, and crafted in gold, you were settings and your engravings. On that day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created. Can I tell you that nowhere else in all of Scripture, barring what God himself says of his son Jesus Christ, are, are given such flourishing and flowing words of absolute beauty. Lucifer was a sight to behold. Lucifer uh, was uh, in the org chart of angels, the top of the list. The scripture even tells us that even the great angels like Gabriel and even Michael, the archangel, were at best maybe equal with Lucifer, if not a little less than him. In the book of Jude, there speaks of a dispute that takes place between the archangel Michael and the devil. And the Bible makes it clear that even the archangel Michael would not bring a word of accusation against the devil except the word, the Lord rebuke you. Speaking of a sense of reverence, if you will, or at least an understanding that devil, you outrank me. And so the only thing I can bring up is the one who outranks you, and that is God. He's the top of the org chart with regards to angels. Let me highlight a couple things from this passage. When God speaks of his beauty, he speaks of a creature that was absolutely breathtaking. He didn't need diamonds. He didn't need fine jewelry because he was a diamond. He didn't need a spotlight because he shined like the noonday sun. He was glorious. He was a masterpiece. But never forget that the beauty and splendor of a created thing will always and should always only point to the creator, not the created. And so when we see that, we need to stand in awe, not of Lucifer or of angels or even the pretty people that we may be sitting next to who have been given all the talents and all the opportunities to do great things. It should always point us, created individuals, to praise the name of our creator. Well, what was his job? Ezekiel tells us that Lucifer was on the holy mountain of God. This speaks of Lucifer's absolute intimacy with God. He walked in God's holy presence. Not all angels were given that ability. Not all angels had that kind of access to God. 
His access to God was greater than that of all of those around him. He was given the title, notice Ezekiel says, of guardian cherub. Well, this speaks of his ranking, which we've already spoken about, that he was the top of the organizational chart of angels. It also speaks of his role. He was to see that all other angels devoted themselves to the worship of God. He was the worship leader who rallied the angels together, the myriad upon myriad of angels, to worship and bow the knee to our God in heaven. So then what would make this amazing creature go from such lofty places to the depths of evil? Notice that as we look at his identity, we see there's a fatal flaw in the devil, and that is his vanity, his vanity. Lucifer had it all, seemingly, but one day he stood in front of the mirror a little too long. He looked at his his loveliness, he looked at his beauty and his splendor, and he began to think in his heart, you're better than anything else out there. He began to forget his position as created and he began to imagine a world where people would not worship someone else other than himself. He became proud. Notice in Ezekiel 28, 17, it says, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Can I tell you that that sin and vanity of the devil is alive and well in the human heart? I will tell you one of the things that I regret, one of the sins I regret in my life, and I'm embarrassed to tell you, was as I was beginning my ministry as a young man here, someone uh, in this church came and said, Tim, you are uh, the one with the golden touch. When it comes to ministry, everything you touch turns to gold. And instead of slapping that person silly, I got in the car and let the afterglow of that stupid statement fill my heart. And you know, not too long after that, God brought me low. And he said, hey, golden boy, you think you can do this? Try to do it with depression filling your heart. Try to do it when when ministry seems to be unraveling all around. You think you're so good? Do it on your own. And God had to give some white hairs. He had to break my heart and remind me that we are only here and can only do what God gives us the grace to do. And so the devil and Tim all and many of us look in the mirror too long. We think we're God's gift to this universe. We think in our minds, man, I'm sure glad, I'm sure that God is glad he picked me for his team. What would he have done without me? And so some of us need to be very careful this morning. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that when looking for an elder, we must be careful not to bring on young men, new converts in the faith. Why? Because Paul says they may fall to the same temptation as the devil. They will be filled with vanity. A church affirms on uh, a new uh, believer uh, the job of leading and, and, and representing the church. And because of that role and because of the authority and identity that comes from that, it will be easy for that man to fall to the same vanity as the devil. Be careful, brothers and sisters, when we read our own press clippings, when we look and and we are blown away by our own splendor. Because when we do that, We are not mimicking the God of the universe. We are mimicking the devil himself. Well, the devil looks and he likes what he sees in the mirror and he begins to think, hey, why do I have to play second fiddle? Why do I have to make sure that people worship this God? Why aren't people worshiping me? Why aren't people ministering to me? I want you to notice that one of the ways that the devil works is getting you to ask the question, listen, this is important, what about me? And the church is full of what about me? And that's the same question that the devil asked in eternity past. What about me? 
Where's my praise? Where's my comfort? Where is my preferences being met? What about me? When you start asking that question, it may not mean that you have have gone the way of the devil, but you're asking the same questions he did. And so he begins to ask the question, what about me? Remember, his job was to make sure all their angels were devoting themselves to the worship of God. But it began to bother him that the songs weren't about him that the talk around the table wasn't about him. And so Ezekiel 28, 16, God says this, in the abundance of your trade, Lucifer, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. The job of, of rallying the troops would be the trade that the devil would use to rally the, the troops in a coup d'etat in heaven. How would he advertise it? In Isaiah, turn in a moment for uh, a moment to the book of Isaiah. Uh, The book of Isaiah, if you uh, are following along, is is to your left if you're in the book of Ezekiel. A couple couple books to the left. If you're following in the Pew Bible, it's uh, uh, page 578. Page 578. What did the devil do? The devil made some statements. You see, uh, one of the things that the devil was doing was he was thinking about how great he was. And maybe this morning you're thinking about how great you are. You're thinking about how good you do things. And you say, you know what? I I can have this pride. I can have this. And nobody will ever know it. I want you to know that uh, whatever is on the inside will eventually come out. And I don't know how long the devil in his heart was thinking these things, but at some point what was registering in his heart made it to his mouth and he started making statements. In Isaiah 14 verses 12 through uh, 16, this is what it says. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, You laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. The devil made five statements. And God says, hey, I've been reading your mind the whole time. There's nothing that you can hide from me. And that's a true word for us today. God sees everything. Every inclination of the human heart, God sees. You think you're going to get away with it. You think, well, maybe, maybe your spouse won't know it. Maybe your kids won't know it. Maybe your parents won't know it. Maybe the police won't know it. Maybe your boss won't know it. But God does. Even a rebellion against him, God is not this uh, king who is absent from his throne, unaware of what his subordinates are doing. God said, I was reading your heart, and I knew what you were thinking the moment you thought them. And so what is, he be, what is he thinking? He's thinking, I want God's job. I want to ascend. I want to be above everything. I want a throne, he says in verse 12. Or verse 13. In verse 13, he says, I want to have all of the people worshiping me from the far reaches of the galaxy. I want to ascend above everything else. I want to be like God. Let me remind you again that that may be true in the spiritual world, but it's also true in the human world as well. So many of us want to be God. We don't like what God has said and like our our, ancestors, Adam and Eve, we make deals with the devil to try to rebel against God and get our own way instead of his. And so he makes these five I will statements. I want to be God, and the only thing standing in my way is God, and I'm going to take him out. 
Now you say, well, that's just stupid. How could he even think that he could do it? Let me, let me remind you of how incredibly awesome Lucifer was. He was awesome enough. He talked a good enough of a game. There was enough there that a third of the angels in heaven that worshiped God day and night, a third of the myriads upon myriads of angels, a third of them, 33% of millions upon millions of angels, when looking at God and looking at Lucifer said, in a fight, I think Lucifer will win. That's incredible. And it shows, listen, it shows the outright amazement of Lucifer's deceiving power. You think that you can stand firm on your own against the, de the devil's schemes? Those angels who resided in the uh, glory of the one and only God were deceived into thinking God could be taken out. And so we need to be aware that this devil is, it always drives me crazy, by the way, when, when some uh, teacher or preacher on, on TV tells us to, to rebuke and throw out the devil like he's a rag doll. They don't have good theology. A third of the angels thought that the devil could take him in a fight, and we think we can throw him around like he's a little kid. He's powerful. He's the ultimate villain. So what happens in that moment? I don't know how much the God allowed the devil to, to pursue this rebellion, but we know that a third of the angels had made the decision, we're going with Lucifer, we're going to do this thing. Now, I want you to turn back, back to the book of Ezekiel for a moment, because in that moment, in that moment of rebellion, God says, I'm going to have nothing to do with this. We're going to deal with this once and for all. In Ezekiel 28, verse 15, he says the following. You are blameless in your ways, verse 15. This is page 716 again, for those that are following in the Pew Bible. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty, your corrupted, your wisdom, for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I expose you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you. And I turned you to the ashes on the earth in sight of all who would see it. And all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. God says, you think you can rebel against me? You think you can take my place? I'm going to launch you out of heaven. And I'm going to throw you out of heaven into a place called hell. In Luke 10, 18, Luke 10, 18, Jesus says he was there at that moment in eternity past when he says, I saw the devil thrown out of heaven. Where was the devil thrown? The New Testament addresses this fact. Write these passages down. 2 Peter 2, 4. 2 Peter 2, 4. And Jude 6. There's only one chapter of Jude, verse 6. Where are they? Vanquished from heaven, now in gloomy dungeons in hell. But be careful that you don't think that hell is the neighborhood of the devil, that, that he runs that place. Brothers and sisters, he is captive in prison, just like the rest of the demons. He's not the warden. He's not the supervisor. He's a prisoner. Maybe the prisoner that has the biggest rap sheet, yes, but a prisoner nonetheless. He's been vanquished. Now we know that the text says that this vanquishment, if you will, 
has a level of parole to it because we know that the devil is, as our text said in Peter, that he is still active, that he is still roaming around. But what is he doing? From a defeated position, he is waging war. Now, why would he do that? The same reason why terrorists are attacking uh, the powerful countries of the world. Do you think ISIS really believes, listen, do you think ISIS really believes that they could beat the United States? Brothers and sisters, we got more bombs to drop on those guys than we know what to do with. ISIS has no thought that they're going to take over in a conventional war the United States. But what they do is they fight what is called an asymmetric warfare. A warfare of a, a lesser creature or a lesser group of people against a more powerful group of people. Their job is to nibble and bite and, and cause skirmishes and, and little things that demoralize the more powerful creature or the more powerful nation into thinking they're greater than they really are. And that's why you see all these beheadings. That's why you see all this propaganda. Because ISIS recognizes that in a head-to-head -head match with a more powerful country, they will never win. And so what they choose to do is these vicious things to destroy the morale of the people of the more powerful nation. And the devil has the blueprint on this. I can't beat God. He's already shown me that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it look as if I'm winning this fight. I'm going to demoralize the people in thinking that I'm going to win. I'm going to discourage them. I'm going to cause them to be defeated. And I'm going to do so with a barrage of attacks that seek to throw you and I off our game. And he's an absolute master at it. So how does he do it? Notice his strategy. What does he want to accomplish? The Bible tells us first that the job of the devil is to deceive us. The Bible makes it clear that he masquerades like an angel of light, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He wants you to think that he is a nice guy. He wants you to think that there is good to what he does. He deceives so that he might blind the unbelievers from the gospel. Just keep doing what you're doing. Keep raising your family. Keep going to work. Just stay away from Jesus. Just stay busy enough with your vacations and your toys and, and all of your things. Don't, don't worry about that. Just don't worry about God. Make him a small part of your life or no part at all. And in the end, I'll have you, he says. He does this by telling lies, John 8, 44. That he's the father of lies. That lies are his native tongue. That's all he knows. That's, that's his character language. And so sadly, myriads upon myriads of people are living according to his lies and doing so to their own demise. So he deceives. Notice his second strategy is to divide. He loves to divide. The devil seeks to ruin two relationships in this world. Man's relationship with God, and he did that from the beginning. Did God really say, he said to Adam and Eve, you could be like him. You don't need to play second fiddle. Be your own God. Do your own thing. Whatever feels good, do it. You are the captain of your ship. You don't need to look to anybody else. You don't need to be a subordinate. So tell God, forget it. I don't want you. I want to do it my own way. And he divides us and creates enmity between us and God. But he also seeks, listen, to destroy the relationship between man and man. You see, once we ruin our relationship with God in ourselves, our relationships with one another will be destroyed. Shortly after Adam and Eve's fall to the sin of rebellion against God, they're covering themselves because they're divided. Not too long after that, their, their one son is killing the other son out of anger. Nation will wage war against nation. Lives will be lost. You see, the devil loves war. The devil loves hatred. The devil loves it when a, when a young man can walk into a South Carolina church and, and shoot people that are there for the sake of praying. The devil loves that. He loves racism. 
He loves all of that because he can create division. And so one of the things that he absolutely loves that he sits there and claps with glee is when a church divides itself. He says, I have done something great. He wants to divide. He wants to deceive. And the Bible says in John 10.10, he seeks to destroy. The devil desires to do destruction every day. He plans to destroy human government through anarchy. Any student of history can trace the strategy of the devil, the activity of malign power, poisoning the streams of human history. He loves to be the mastermind behind the present world system and its lust for power and political and economic intrigue. He loves that. Every man for themselves. No submission. That is the politics of the devil. He purposes to destroy human society through debauchery. Any student of sociology can trace the similar pattern in the cycles of human history. Even in our own day today, we have seen a world flooded with moral filth to an inconceivable degree 50 years ago. And the devil says, just keep eating it up and getting farther and farther away from God. He destroys through apostasy when it comes to religion. Any student of theology and church history will see the reoccurring heresies and apostasies throughout the centuries. And even in our own day, the absolute abundance of old heresies and heretical cults, we're praying for a billion Muslims who have bought into a religion of the devil. The devil loves it. He loves it. It's his trade and and he seeks to show this with an unbelievable example and proof of power. It's easy to become disheartened by such a fierce villain. It seems that we're no match for him. And I would agree that we're not. Martin Luther spoke in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He said this, For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, What does Luther say? We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for though his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him. Well, the devil has no equal on this earth. Luther was convinced of this incredible truth. We have God on our side. And it is through God alone that we, and my final point is, can have victory. In that same hymn, here's what Luther says. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name. From age to age, the same. And he finishes with this. And he must win the battle. This is exactly, this is exactly what Christ did. I want you to see four ways this morning, very quickly, how Christ won the victory and how you and I can have victory over the devil. God defeated the devil, first of all, very quickly, strategically. Let me be clear about this. The devil never had a chance. He was doomed to defeat. But notice in the moment that God saw the devil's rebellious heart, that God could have made a decision to have obliterated once and for all all evil from his midst. Never to be heard from again. But God makes a decision that he wouldn't do that. God consigns him to hell, gives him free reign around the world to wreak havoc in the lives of both sinners and believers alike. Now why would God do that? Because God took the evil that the devil had planned and he uses it for his glory. 
That God says, you don't scare me, devil. You're not going to thwart my, my ministry, my goals, my purposes. In fact, in Job chapter 1, the devil comes as all other demons do. And he presents himself to God. The idea here is that, that demons present themselves to God. Presenting themselves as subordinates of God. This is where, again, Luther calls the devil God's chained dog. He is, the God, he is God's devil. And God uses the devil however and whenever he wants and will continue to do so in order to bring himself more glory, honor, and praise. So we need to know God's dealt with him strategically. Notice prophetically, the devil must have been pretty banged up in heaven after the rebellion took place. He was no match for God. But he found someone he could find victory over. In the Garden of Eden, he found humanity. And he went to the garden and he got humanity to do what he did. Rebel against God, seek their own glory for themselves. And when that moment happened and they ate from that forbidden fruit, the devil must have been filled with glee because sin, just as it was found in him, was now found in all of humanity. He must have felt like celebrating. And I'm sure he did. But in Genesis chapter 3, God has the final word. In verse 15, he says, hey, you lost the second pride entered your heart, Lucifer. But let me tell you, a day's coming. In Genesis 3.15, he says, there's a day coming where I will bring you down. And I will show you what defeat feels like. You think you can mess things up? Ruin my plans? So you've got another thing coming. You think you can corrupt humanity? I'm going to use the mess of humanity that you think you've created and I'm going to redeem it and use it against yourself. The woman is going to bear a son and he's going to show you that I'm boss. And you're not going to know in that moment what hits you. Galatians 4.4 4 says that just at the right time, Jesus came. And so prophetically, in the book of Genesis, he said, devil, your day in court is coming. Notice it happened historically. Jesus would come. He would be born of a virgin. He would come to redeem those under the law. He would live a life of perfection. He would withstand the temptations of the devil, and he would go to the cross, dying the death we could not, securing the victory. On that cross, that old rugged cross, Jesus Christ once and for all defeated the devil and destroyed all of his plans. He is now, the devil is, forever the loser, and Jesus is forever the victor. And because of that victory on the cross... One day the devil will be defeated eternally. We don't have time to turn there, but Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3 and 7 through 10, tells us at a time of God's own choosing that he will one day take the devil and throw him into a bottomless pit where he will be tormented day and night forevermore. So please don't be, make, make no mistakes about it. The devil is defeated. His lot has been cast. His demise is sure. But what do we do till then? Notice our activity. How are we to live? We're going to talk about this in the days to come, but let me give you some application this morning. How are we to respond when the devil attacks? Number one, remember who lives in you. Remember who lives in you. You're a child of the king. You're a soldier in the army of God. You fight for the general who's already won the battle. And because you are his, his spirit resides in you, and you and I can have confidence that we need not fear the devil and his attacks, because 1 John 4.4 4 tells us that greater is he that is in us, that is God who is in us, than the devil who is in the world. And so you don't need to be worried when the devil attacks. You just need to know who to turn to. Your job is to turn to the victor and remind the devil of his defeats. Remember who lives in you. Number two, resist the devil's advances. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He won't think about it. He won't, might do it. No, he will do it. Some of us need to start saying no. We need to tell the devil we won't play his games. That we want nothing to do with him and his temptations. Reminded that God always gives us a way of escape. But we must always trust that the God's ways are better than the devil's. 
We must resist him. Finally, we must respond with God's word. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted by the devil on three occasions while in the wilderness. And each time, Jesus used God's word. Some say the reason why he did it was to show us how we could do it. I think Jesus used the word because it's the greatest tool not only in his arsenal, but ours as well. And so we need to meditate on the word. We need to study the word. We need to apply the word. We need to use the word so that we might find victory every step of the way. Let me close this morning with a short story and then I will release you off to your days. The story is told of a chess champion who was on vacation in Europe. One day while visiting an art gallery, he came to a particular painting that mesmerized him. The painting was that of a chess game, which deeply interested this chess champion. But the painting depicted a chess game like no other the man had ever seen. On one side of the chessboard was the devil, laughing, full of gaiety and even frivolity. He had his hand on the board, getting ready to make a move. On the other side of the chessboard was a young man who was shaking and trembling all over. His knees were knocking, sweat was coming down his forehead, tears were coming from his eyes, and he was biting his fingernails. The chess champion came to understand the meaning of the portrait when he saw the title, Checkmate, under the portrait. The devil was about to make his final move to win this man's soul. The devil was laughing while the young man was terrified because he knew he couldn't do anything about it. The chess champion was so taken by this portrait that he studied it for several hours. And then he broke out into a smile when he went to look for the proprietor of the art gallery. Sir, would you happen to have a chessboard here? The staff scurried around and found an old chessboard. The champion put the chessboard at the base of the painting and set it up to duplicate the arrangement exactly as it was in the portrait. After he had done all this, the man looked at the portrait, then looked down at the chessboard. He did this several times, looking back and forth between the painting and the board. Then he turned the chessboard to the young man's side of the painting and said, young man, I wish you could hear me right now because it looks as if you could stop trembling and wipe your tears because I've got good news for you. I'm a chess champion and I know this game backwards and forward. You are trembling for no reason. It looks as if the devil has a final move. But he's tricked you because you still have one move on the board. Your life can be transformed. The devil doesn't get to make the last move. You see, the human race is in the same position as the young man in the painting. It looks to the devil and it sees him as if he has won the chess game of history. And because of it, there are many who find themselves trembling in fear. But we have a champion who will make the final and last move on the devil. The coming of Jesus Christ was God's greatest move in this spiritual chess game. Jesus defeated the devil for all time and eternally stripped him of all his power. And then he did the unthinkable. He called out a people for himself, a church, which is his body, and he has invested us with all spiritual authority under heaven to carry out the victory that Christ has won on Calvary. Because Christ has won the victory, Satan has already been defeated. And our only now ta our task now is to announce and declare the victory. Live in victory this week. Don't live in defeat. The devil's been defeated, and because of Christ in your life, you can have the victory, both here in the now and in the days to come. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and we thank you that in the middle of this message, while we promoted the awesomeness of what you created in Lucifer, we also recognize and know that there is no equal to our God. And Lord, we pray this morning that we would be wise to the devil's schemes. We would be wise to his power. We'd be wise to his strategy so that we might be ready to uh, fend off the attacks, that we might uh, resist him so that he will flee, that we might respond to him with your word, that we might remember that you are in us and because you are in us, we can have victory in our temptations and in our trials and in our tribulation because you have won the war. So Lord, let us go on the offensive. 
Let us seek to be on the front line. Though our adversary is great, you are far greater. Though he may have power, you have all the power in all the universe and then so much more. You're omnipotent. You know all things. And because we are in you, we know and have confidence that we've won this battle. Let us fight from victory, not from defeat in the days to come. Let us be a church that fights from victory and not defeat as we seek to share the gospel, the good news of your son, not only to the people in this region, but to the uttermost parts of the world. Lord, let us be victorious in that battle as we fight this battle with you. Now send us forth, Lord, in a world with devils filled. Let us find victory and not defeat in the days to come. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen.